Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains a reference to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams and today we're heading back to Monday the 5th of July 1920. That was the day that sparked a murder trial that's still controversial one century later. At 11.30 on this morning, 100 years ago, Detective Sergeant Stuart Robson and his partner walked into the Empire Hotel in Annandale in inner western Sydney. There, they fronted one of the pub's cellar workers. He was Harry Crawford, a slight, craggy-faced man with short, dark hair. The cops told Harry that he had to come with them to the CIB to help them with an important inquiry. At the detective office, Harry was asked to set out his life story. He made a signed statement in which he said he'd been born in Edinburgh, Scotland in July 1875 and that his parents had emigrated to New Zealand when he was a wee baby. At the age of 18, he'd worked his way to Sydney aboard a steamer. Since then, he'd lived the ordinary and honest life of a working-class man, taking jobs as a general hand in various Sydney hotels, abattoirs and factories. For almost all of that time, Harry said in his statement, he'd been single. That had changed in September of last year when he'd married a slightly older woman named Lizzie Allison and they now live together in a house in Stanmore. Harry Crawford concluded his statement by saying his wife was pretty much the only friend he'd made in all the time he'd lived in Australia. Detective Sergeant Stuart Robson didn't believe Harry's statement, and he told him so. The detective had already interviewed two people who'd given a very different account of Harry's life and times. That included him in 1914, marrying a widow named Annie Burkett, who had a teenage son also named Harry, who we'll call Harry Jr. to try and avoid confusion. Thing was, Annie Burkett had disappeared at the end of September 1917, and Detective Sergeant Robson now suspected that she'd met foul play and that the man in front of him was responsible. Confronted with this information, Harry explained that he hadn't said anything about Annie in the statement because he hadn't wanted to raise the shameful truth, and that was that she'd been an unfaithful lush who'd walked out on him. Detective Sergeant Robson didn't believe this any more than he believed that Harry Crawford was Harry Crawford, or based on something that Harry Jr. had said, that he was actually a man. Detective Sergeant Robson asked his suspect if he had any identifying marks on his body. Harry said he didn't. When the detective asked him to remove his clothes to confirm this, Harry refused and mused that he was probably going to jail. According to Detective Sergeant Robson, Harry then asked what the procedure was for someone bound for prison. Told he'd be given a bath and a change of clothes, Harry asked, quote, Can I go in the women's ward? Detective Sergeant Robson said no. Then Harry said he had something that he needed to tell the detective. Based on what Harry Jr. had already said, Detective Sergeant Robson had a good idea of what was coming next. 
As the officer later testified, quote, It was then the accused whispered in my ear, I'm a woman, not a man. After this confession, Harry then agreed to be examined by the government doctor, and his startling claim was confirmed. Told by Detective Sergeant Robson that he was being charged with murder and that his home would need to be searched, Harry revealed that his second wife, Lizzie, didn't know that he was a man and asked them not to tell her. During this search, the police found an artificial phallus that went some way to explaining how Harry had deceived two women during his relationships with them. The Sydney Morning Herald's headline the next morning read, Tragedy revived, woman in male attire accused, extraordinary marriage stories. The article began, A remarkable discovery was made by the police yesterday. Late in the afternoon, a woman masquerading as a man who had twice gone through the ceremony of marriage with persons of her own sex was charged with the murder of a woman whose body was found in the bush at Chatswood in October 1917. The mystery of that burned corpse had been big news back then. She hadn't been identified and an open verdict had been returned at the inquest because the government medical officers had not been able to determine the cause of death. While the police believed there was a good chance the woman had been murdered, they also couldn't rule out suicide by self-immolation because a kerosene can was found at the site and a witness reported seeing a deranged-seeming woman in the vicinity in the days leading up to the discovery. Hoping to one day get some answers, police had kept items found with the body, including dentures, a pair of shoes and green gemstone jewellery. On the morning of the 6th of July, 1920, a big crowd gathered at Central Police Court to see Harry Crawford, dubbed by the newspapers as the man-woman charged with murder. As it turned out, the accused had been born Eugenia Fellini. She had been born in July of 1875, just in Italy rather than in Scotland. Her family had moved to New Zealand when she was about two years old, but growing up, Eugenia had identified as male and wore men's clothing and worked as a man when he took to the seas in the mid-1890s. Though he went by the name Eugene, the captain of one of these vessels discovered his secret and raped him. Dumped pregnant in Newcastle in New South Wales, Eugene gave birth to a daughter he named Josephine. Calling himself Harry Crawford, he then told a double bay couple named Mr. and Mrs. DeAngelis that the girl's mother was dead and he convinced them to raise her. Over the next 15 years or so, Harry was a fleeting presence in his daughter's life and though he dressed as a man, she knew he was actually her mother. Harry couldn't read or write and had to take work where he could find it, in hotels, factories and abattoirs. In 1912, he landed a slightly better job as a sulky driver to a doctor living on Sydney's North Shore. That was where Harry met and wooed Annie Burkett, who was working as the doctor's housekeeper. Though Harry was a man of bad tempers and bad drinking habits, his persistence paid off and they married in 1913. By then, Annie had quit working for the doctor and used her savings to open a confectionery store in Balmain, where she and her new husband lived with Harry Jr., After Mr. DeAngelis went back to Italy and Mrs. DeAngelis died, Harry's daughter Josephine lobbed up on their doorstep and further upset an already rocky marriage. In early 1917, Annie discovered her husband's secret and wrote to her sister Lily, I have something I want to tell you. 
I found out something queer about Harry. I don't know what to do, but I'll tell you about it when I see you and get your advice. Annie did see her sister briefly, but didn't get a chance to tell her what she decided to do. Then, on the 28th of September, 1917, Annie and Harry set off for a picnic, and she was never seen again. In the days that followed, Harry Crawford told Harry Jr., who was by then 14, that his mother had gone to visit friends and then put it around the neighbourhood that she'd run off with another man. A few days later, the badly burned remains of the unidentified woman were found in that Chatswood bushland. Soon after these events, Harry and Harry Jr. moved into a boarding house in Woolamaloo run by a Mrs. Henrietta Scheiblick. Harry told this woman that his wife had cleared out with another man. In the time they lived there, Harry Jr. would later testify, his stepfather acted in an increasingly sinister manner. Harry Sr. was illiterate, so he asked the boy to read an article in a newspaper that had a photo of the shoes that had been found with the burned woman. Even creepier, one night Harry had taken the boy to a cliff at the Gap and seemed to want him to come to the edge. On another literally dark and stormy night, he'd taken him into bushland near Double Bay and ordered him to start digging what looked like a grave, before abandoning whatever scheme he had. For a time there, Harry Crawford seemed to be losing his mind. His landlady, Mrs. Scheiblick, was suspicious of her new tenant. She'd testify, quote, Fellaini seemed to act and carry on as if he had been extremely excited and half mad. Fellaini told me that if two big men looking like policemen came to the house, I was to say that he did not reside there. Harry had also told her a concerning detail about his estranged wife, quote, in the kitchen, Fellaini told me that he had a jolly good row with his wife and gave her a jolly good crack on the head and she left him. Another morning, he'd seemed completely crazed. Mrs. Scheiblick testified that he ran into her kitchen one day crying, Oh, madam, madam, I'm haunted. The place is haunted. And she replied, I think it is your wife haunting you. I think you killed her. Harry said to her, Oh, why do you say that? Before sitting at the table and crying. At other times, when blind drunk, she claimed that he'd spoken of killing Harry Jr. As for why Mrs. Scheiblick hadn't gone to the police with her concerns, all of this was happening while the Great War was still raging, and because she was German, she feared internment. To get rid of Harry, she told him that two detectives had come looking for him. He cleared out soon after that, while young Harry went to live by himself. For the next two years, Harry Crawford lived a nomadic life in Sydney, going from job to job and boarding house to boarding house. That was until he met his second wife and they shacked up in Stanmore in September 1919. Meanwhile, Harry Jr. and his maternal aunt Lily had, rather belatedly, started to really question what had happened to Annie Burkett. And it was around this time that Harry Jr. had a chance encounter with someone who told him that his stepfather was a woman. Harry Jr. and his aunt went to the police, who tied the timing of Annie's disappearance to the discovery of the body in the bush at Chatswood. Harry and Lily were also able to identify items found with that body as belonging to Annie. Armed with this information, Sydney police set out to find Harry Crawford. It took them some time, but on the 5th of July 1920, 100 years ago today, detectives found Harry Crawford 
aka Eugene Fellaini, aka Eugenia Fellaini, working at the Empire Hotel in Annandale. The committal hearing in August was a media circus, with a prominent actor and actress even given seats because they wanted to gawk at Eugene, who appeared in male clothing, but who, mercifully, was hidden behind a screen. By then, Annie's body had been exhumed. The government medical officers testified they had found seven fractures in her skull, though they said all but one of these had likely been caused by the fire that had burned much of the body. In these experts' opinions, she might have been hit, rendered unconscious, and then burned while still alive. The police produced numerous witnesses, including people who'd supposedly seen Eugene and Annie leaving their house with a picnic basket, seen him in the Chatswood bushland around the time of the death, and then seen him return home alone. Harry Jr. and Annie's sister Lily identified the shoes and jewellery found with the body as belonging to Annie. And dentists said that the dentures found with the body were consistent with work that they'd done for Mrs. Burkett. The landlady, Mrs. Scheiblich, gave her damning accounts of Eugene, while his daughter Josephine confirmed he'd long lived a life of deception. Eugene was committed to stand trial in October. When that rolled around, he pleaded not guilty and the court heard much the same evidence from the same witnesses. In his defence, Eugene made an unsworn statement. It didn't help at all because, on the verge of a nervous breakdown after three months in Long Bay Jail, he was pretty much unable to say anything eloquent in his defence other than to say he was innocent and knew nothing of Annie's fate. At the end of the second day of the trial, the jury retired for two hours and then came back with its verdict. Guilty. Eugene was sentenced to hang, though this would be commuted to life in the women's section of Long Bay Jail. At the end of the 1920s, there was a major campaign for Eugene Fellaini to be paroled, based on his age, frailty, and doubts about the righteousness of the conviction. A century on, questions about that conviction have lingered. Several newspaper articles make the claim that Eugene later said he and Annie had had an argument at the picnic, she'd slipped and fell and hit her head and died. Panicking and fearing the exposure of his secret, he'd then burnt the body and embarked on his cover-up. If Eugene Fellaini said this, I haven't been able to find a record of it. There's a good chance it arose from a misunderstanding of the 2012 book Eugenia by Mark Tedeschi, former New South Wales Senior Crown Prosecutor. In this work, he does speculate such a scene, basing his conjecture on the scientific evidence that there were only minor fractures to Annie's skull and in support of his argument that if Eugene was guilty of anything, it was of manslaughter and of being transgender in a transphobic society. While Mr Tedeschi's description of this moment is speculative, his main legal argument that there wasn't sufficient evidence for a murder conviction is completely compelling. The book makes a good read for his careful demolition of the police evidence, particularly ill-informed forensic conclusions and the reliance on eyewitnesses testifying about what they'd seen three years earlier and after recently being primed by what they'd seen and read in the newspapers about the so-called man-woman, including photos of the accused. Mr. Tedeschi also makes it clear Eugene didn't receive an adequate defence, with his counsel failing to properly cross-examine these witnesses and point out the numerous inconsistencies and contradictions in the Crown case. 
Of course, Eugene's defence faced one other huge obstacle, and that was that he maintained he had no knowledge whatsoever about Annie Burkett's death. If Eugene Fellaini had been convicted of manslaughter, the judge could have imposed the maximum sentence of 20 years. Given the circumstances, the destruction of the body and bias against him as a transgender man, Eugene might very well have received this maximum punishment. As it was, the dubious murder conviction, along with his age and increasing frailty, engendered sympathy, and Eugene Fellaini was released from Long Bay Jail in 1931. Living now as Gene Ford and dressing as a woman, lest he break the conditions of his parole, Eugene enjoyed success and popularity running a boarding house in Paddington. Then, on the 9th of June 1938, Eugene stepped off a city curb and into the path of an oncoming vehicle. He died the following day at the age of 62. Once his body was identified, there was a brief flurry of interest in the case before it returned to obscurity. It wasn't until about 20 years ago that Eugene Fellaini's life, adversities, crimes and the potential injustice of his case really began to be re-examined and re-evaluated. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.